Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. While you may have never heard of the Parpin sisters, their story may sound familiar. Two domestic servants seeking revenge on their wealthy employer for the cards they've been dealt in life. If you do recognise that premise, it's probably because South Korean film director Bong Joon-ho's Oscar win in 2019 film Parasite was inspired by this case. It's a tale as old as time the struggle between classes, and the resentment that can follow. Though Parasite is set in the modern-day South Korea, and the Popin sisters committed their crimes in the 1930s France, you'll see the haves and the have-nots can clash at any time and in any place. If you hadn't seen the movie, it's worth a watch, or maybe even a rewatch after recognizing the parallels between fact and fiction. Setting. This case takes place in Le Mans, France, located in the northwestern region. This charming city dates back to ancient Roman times. Britain's own King Henry II was born there in the year 1133. Le Mans was a humble market town, thriving off its local agriculture until the mid-19th century. That's when industrialisation hit. Major advancements including railway construction, early motor car production, and the introduction of agricultural machinery. All of these developments led to mass textile and tobacco production. The population soon swelled, and the town was transformed into an industrialized city. In the 1930s, the era of this landmark case, France faced its own Great Depression. During the economic crisis, the division between social classes grew more pronounced. Today, Le Mans is known for the world-renowned automobile race held annually, called 24 Hours of Le Mans. It is the world's oldest active sports car endurance race, dating back to 1923. This event definitely put the French city on the map, but it would be the Poppin sisters who gave Le Mans notoriety. Perps. 
Leah and Christine Parpin had an extremely troubled childhood. Their parents, Gustave and Clemence, were miserable people who took their misfortunes out on their children. Christine's birth in 1905 was far from a happy occasion. Clemence grew severely depressed and Gustave drank away his sorrows. With their parents unable and unwilling to care for a young child, Christine was sent to live with her aunt. At the age of seven, Christine was sent to Bon Pasteur Catholic Orphanage, the same place her older sister, Amelia, was sent when she was ten. When Leah was born in 1911, the same tension existed in the household. Yet another unwanted child, Leah spent her first few years living with an uncle. Once the girls were all old enough to care for themselves, they were brought back to live with their parents. It was a volatile environment with lots of arguments paired with physical, emotional and sexual abuse. At one point, their older sister, Amelia, was sexually assaulted by their alcoholic father and fled to a nunnery. Their mother was reportedly very cold and did little to protect her three daughters against their father's rage. In fact, she grew jealous of the inappropriate and traumatic attention he gave his daughters. Shortly after Amelia fled the home, Mr. and Miss Poppin divorced. Miss Poppin was later described by the Harrisburg Sunday Carrier as a religious mystique whose spiritual practices verge on hysteria. No matter what, Lee and Christine had each other. Being the middle child, Christine was extremely protective of her younger sister. Though they were six years apart, the girls were inseparable from infancy well into adulthood. Some sources say Leah and Christine spent some time in a mental institution where they were mostly mute. Other publications say they were shuffled between foster homes or maybe joined their elder sister at a convent. Regardless of their fate, one thing was apparent. Their parents wanted little to do with them. When Leah was still a child, the sisters were sent to domestic service. They insisted on remaining together at all times. For several years, they worked for different employers. Their mother, who demanded to be given their wages, thought the girls could make more money in each as a general maidservant. This seemed to be a mutually beneficial situation. While having live-in help represented the Lancelin's great wealth, the Parpin girls also earned a stable income in a lavish setting. Unlike most belonging to the lower classes at this time, the sisters enjoyed heated bedrooms, a standard wage, and an open invitation to dine with their employers. It seemed their lives were on the uptick. No longer threatened by the prospect of being shipped to a relative or locked in an orphanage, Leah and Christine felt free at last. They stopped sending their wages to their mother and began saving almost all they had earned. This decision led to a major falling out between the girls and their mother. The wedge between them mattered very little to Christine, who harbored anger toward her mother for childhood trauma. The only person in the world Christine truly needed was her sister, Leah. Since Christine had added the responsibility of cooking, she made $12 a month, while Leah earned 8 Both worked extremely long hours, on average 14 hours daily, with one half day off work a week. Most girls in their 20s 
would have embraced this opportunity to get out, see the city, maybe catch a film. The Poppin sisters spent all their afternoons off together in their bedroom with the door locked. Christine and Leah spent no money on personal enjoyment. They didn't see any movies, buy any new clothes, or indulge in any outside entertainment. They also had no male friends, which was atypical of women their age. By living frugally over the course of their employment, they each managed to save 23,000 francs, or around $20,000 in today's money. This sum was a remarkable accomplishment for two young women who had started with nothing. But following the conflict with their mother, there was new tension in the house, and the Lancelins took note. The website History 101 quotes René Lancelin as writing, quote, This quarrel with the mother certainly soured the characters of the girls, who became sour and tacitum. Since that time, neither my wife nor I have exchanged conversations with them outside of service. They were polite, we felt that the observations would be poorly received, and as our health service was very well done, did not give rise to any criticism. We were patient, end quote. Apparently, interactions had grown so tense that Miss Lancelin only addressed the girls through written notes. It's likely there was a clash of personalities from the very beginning. With Christina's melancholic brooding and her mistress's cold, reserved manner, Madame Lancelin was also a very finicky mistress. She would perform white glove tests, which is exactly how it sounds. While doning white gloves, she dragged a fingertip across the surface, and if it wasn't clean to her standards, she would make the Pappin sisters run through the cleaning process all over again. Just imagine how irritating it must have been to endure that process at the end of a 14-hour shift. While some sources claim that Madame Lancelin's chastisement of the girls extended to physical abuse, the full truth about how she treated her employees remains unclear. Crime As you may have predicted, trouble was on the horizon. The tension that had been simmering peaked on the evening of February 2nd, 1933. Earlier that day, René had been out with a friend while Madame Lancelin and Genevieve made a late afternoon shopping trip. The plan was to reconvene for dinner at Madame Lancelin's brother's house. No one in the Lancelin family was expected home until late that night or early the next morning if they stayed the night. That morning, Madame Lancelin had left a note for the sisters, reminding them to pick up a faulty iron from the local repair shop. After returning from the errand, one of the girls tested out the iron. It was still malfunctioning and caused a blown fuse in the house. The young woman feared what repercussions might follow. For all they knew, this could be the last straw that got them fired. The Parping girls decided to wait until the next morning to bring the iron back in for repairs, since the family wasn't expected back. But then something unexpected happens. The Lancelin women arrived home. They planned to freshen up after a day of shopping before heading to dinner. Their change of plans would prove to be a fatal mistake. Madame Lancelin and Genevieve arrived to find the house dark. A fierce confrontation ensued on the first floor landing. 
with Madame Lancelin unleashing her anger on both Pappins, she was no match for Christine Pappin, who channeled a lifetime of rage to fight back. Christine grabbed a decorative jug nearby and bashed it repeatedly against Madame Lancelin's head. Genevieve attempted to defend her mother, but Christine retaliated by gouging out her eyes. Amidst the commotion, Dia looked to her older sister for guidance. Christine shouted to her sister to gouge out Madame Lancelin's eyes too. The attack didn't end there, it just served to render the Lancelin woman defenceless. Using items retrieved from the kitchen, the sisters struck them with various objects including hammers, knives and appliances. The ambush ended after nearly two hours of relentless slaughter. René Lancelin began to worry when his daughter and his wife failed to show up at his brother-in-law's house. If they were running late, or plans had changed, they surely would have called. He decided to take matters into his own hands and see if they stopped at home. As he came up the walkway leading to his house, Mr. Lancelin noticed it was completely dark, with one exception, the dim flicker of candlelight on the top floor the maids' quarters. This concerned him, but not to the point of panic. He knew the Pappin sisters would be home alone that night. He tried opening the door and then knocking, but there was no answer. He tried calling, but again was met with silence. That's when he decided to notify police. Upon arrival, an officer scaled a garden wall to break into a back window. Several officers, along with Mr. Lancelin, trailed behind. An utter massacre greeted them. It was a terribly gruesome scene, even by modern standards. Both women had been beaten beyond recognition. One of Genevieve's eyeballs had been ripped out and rested on the staircase landing where the vicious attack began. Madame Lancelin's eyeballs rested on the folds of her scarf. Her body shredded dozens of times with a kitchen knife. Officers on the scene would later remark how the bodies of both women resembled scored loaves of bread, like the ones Christine prepared for the family each morning. Due to the brutality of the crime, detectives and Mr. Lancelin assumed there had been a male intruder. They expected to find the Parpins slain in the same savage way. Mr. Lancelin mentioned the lit candle in the upstairs bedroom. Officers bursted open the door and were in shock at what they saw. This is the police! Open up! Leah and Christine were naked in bed, clutching one another. A hammer rested on a nearby chair, coated with blood and bits of hair. When questioned by responding officers, Leah initially feigned innocence. According to the Daily News, she said, I am deaf and dumb. But Christine, on the other hand, wanted due credit. Before confessing, she said, My crime is great enough for me to tell the truth. Leah's confession came moments later. Investigation With both confessions, there wasn't much need for an investigation. One thing that stumped detectives was a motive. What would compel two lower-class women to barbarically murder the family of a man who gave them a better quality of life? 
When interviewed by police, Mr Lancelin spoke of the tension broiling in the house in recent weeks. He also shared that some of his friends remarked the girls were, quote, not normal, end quote, and he regretted not heeding their warnings. One aspect of the case that investigators latched onto was the inappropriate relationship between the sisters, according to the Daily News. Christine had told detectives at one point, I really believe that in another life I was meant to be my sister's husband. Looking back on the case in modern times, a reporter from the Daily News reflected, At the time, love of one woman for another was seen as a sign of insanity, which might have reduced the crime to the impulses of a couple of lunatics. In other words, it was slightly irrelevant that the Pappins may have been incestually entangled. It mostly mattered that it was a same-sex affair, which was socially unacceptable in that era. Once arrested, Leah and Christine's reaction to being apart cemented the stigma of their reactions. Leah was despondent in her jail cell, while Christine was violently angry about being apart from her loyal confidant. Christine put up such a fuss that at one point authorities gave in and let her see Leah. The way they embraced was perceived as inappropriate. This brief reunion did little for Christine's spirits. In July of 1933, she had a psychotic episode where she flew into a rage and tried to gouge out her own eyes. She had to be restrained and sat secured inside a straitjacket for several days. Shortly after this incident, Christine reportedly made a statement to the investigating magistrate. She told him she had suffered a similar fit the night of the murders. The public had mixed reactions when news of the crime broke. Many were sympathetic toward the sisters, believing they experienced a shared psychosis. French intellectuals of the era seized the opportunity to analyze the tension between the wealthy and the working classes. Simone de Bavour, for example, blamed the system, according to the lineup. Thinkers like Jean-Paul Sartre, Jacques Lacan, and Louis-Lee Goulant all weighed in and declared the attack was a manifestation of class warfare, the inevitable result of the mistreatment and exploitation of the working class by the wealthy. This notion would continue to be considered decades later. No matter the driving force behind their retaliation, Christine and Leah Papin had a trial to get through. Their fate lay in the hands of President Judge Butcher. According to Bloomberg Law, unlike American trials, French criminal trials are run mostly by judges, involve little cross-examination, and entail few battles of the experts. Trial A sensationalized trial began on September 30th, 1933. The case had garnered so much public interest that police officers had to be brought in for crowd control outside the courthouse. Instead of focusing on the burden of proof, the Parpin sisters' sanity was called into question. As we mentioned earlier, their mental instability was closely associated with their relationship. The dynamic between Leah and Christine was put under a microscope for all the world to scrutinise. Medical testimony concluded that Christine had been the domineering mastermind, 
with Leah forever serving as a doting pawn. Dr. Furstenberger, director of Le Mans Asylum, called this the, quote, queen and slave complex, end quote. He noted that Leah was of lower intelligence than Christine and therefore could be easily manipulated by her tyrannical older sister. The doctor seemed to think Leah had been controlled and bossed around for so long it had left her void of her own personality. The defense brought to light a history of mental illness in the Papin family. A first cousin had passed away in an asylum a year before the crime, and an uncle had committed suicide. These family tragedies were likely more common than anyone at the time realized, but because such matters were rarely discussed, anyone even related to someone with mental illness was considered cursed with a similar fate. As documented by the Harrisburg Sunday Carrier, Dr. Forstenberger countered the notion of genetic predisposition. He had assessed the mental condition of both young women and concluded, quote, Christine and Leah Papin are in no wise tainted. They do not suffer any mental malady. They do not carry in any way with the weight of a tainted heredity. From the point of view of intellect, affections, and emotions, they are entirely normal. End quote. Lee and Christine both testified at the trial. According to Leah's testimony, the quarrel had started with Christine and the Lancelin women. Leah had stood motionless as the violence intensified. It was only when Christine signaled toward Madame Lancelin and ordered her to tear her eyes out that Leah became involved. It had also been Christine who went into the kitchen to grab objects with the intention of finishing the women off. Christine took a different approach with her testimony. She claimed self-defence. She told the courtroom that Lancelins had initiated a physical confrontation over the power outage and she was fighting for her life. According to the lineup, she attempted to reason with the court by saying, quote, I'd rather have had our bosses' hides than for them to have had ours. End quote. May I remind you, you are under oath. But when presented with the cold, calculated way Madame Lancelin and her daughter Genevieve had been killed, the jury gave little consideration to Christine's defence. The attacks had been heinous, animalistic and conveyed a clear intent to kill. The jury deliberated for just 40 minutes before delivering their verdict. Both were found guilty of two counts of murder, with Leah receiving a lighter sentence. She was perceived as more of an obedient accomplice than a criminally-minded monster. Leah was sentenced to 10 years of hard labour at a penal colony and 20 years of imprisonment. Christine was sentenced to death, which marked a historical milestone. She was the first woman in over 50 years to be sentenced to the guillotine. The beheading would occur right outside the prison gates. The practice of holding executions in the town square had gone out of fashion in the early 20th century. By 1939, the French government had completely outlawed public executions. 
though death sentences in France would continue to be carried out by guillotine until 1977. The Harrisburg Sunday Carrier remarked on the outcome retrospectively by saying, All of France seethed over the verdict, though the murders she and her sister committed are almost unparalleled in brutality. Christine's death sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. During her time in prison, her mental health had greatly deteriorated. She was tormented with endless longing for her sister, which contributed to spells of deep depression. When she constantly refused to eat, Christine was transferred to a mental asylum at Renee's to receive specialized care. Her condition never improved, and she passed away on May 18, 1937, less than four years after her crimes. The official cause of death was listed as cachexia. She literally wasted away. Leah was an exemplary prisoner at Le Mans, without Christine's dark influence informing her every action. She was able to carve out her own identity. In 1941, after serving eight years, Leah was released on good behaviour. She relocated to the town of Nantes, where her mother and older sister joined her. Under an alias, Leah resumed working as a maid and fell into obscurity until she was said to have passed away in 1982. This came into question in the year 2000, when French filmmaker Claude Ventura released a film translated as Quote, in search of the Parpin sisters. End quote. The director claimed to have found the real Leah Parpin and insisted the death announcement 18 years prior was a hoax. The woman in the documentary was living out her final days in a French hospice, the victim of a debilitating stroke that left her partially paralysed and unable to communicate. It remains unclear why the director thought Leah's death date was false. There is no documentation available on this other woman's identity, who passed away in 2001. As for Mr. Lancelin, he faced a lot of difficulty when trying to sell the house where his wife and daughter had been killed. He remained there, deemed by the Daily News as a prisoner at the scene of the crime, until his death two decades later. While Parasite is definitely the most well-known work Inspired by this shocking case, there have been many others. The first play, Jean Jeanette's Les Bonnets, or The Maids, emerged in 1948 and was later made into film. Another play, called My Sister in This House, was produced in 1993 at Canada's University of Regina. According to the Daily News, by the end of the century, there was another play, six films and numerous books, many of which analyzed the case through the lens of the Papin women's sexual orientation. In modern times, the story had been adapted into comic books, paintings, television shows, and even an opera. So why does this case linger in the consciousness of modern society? Maybe it has a lot to do with preconceived notions about members of different classes. Maybe, like Lizzie Borden... No one could fathom demure women committing such a feral, unmerciful act. Or perhaps, like the great thinkers of the era, we find it exciting to examine the complexity of this case. There are no whodunits, 
no intricate plot twists. Instead, there is something within the details of the case that inspires further reflection on society's economic divide. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.